Hey guys, this is Nadine. At the end of the episode, you'll hear me tell you to visit us on our private Facebook group, She's Not a Slut Yet. Well, that's no longer the name because I changed it and I added an Instagram. The new Facebook group name is Snazzy Podcast, which is spelled S-N-A-S-Y Podcast, and the Instagram page is the exact same thing. That's all the updates for now. I hope you all enjoy the episode and revisit us next week for our first movie. This is John. This is Dan. And this is She's Not a Slut Yet. It's a podcast about three friends watching cult movies and drinking together. So this week we're doing a review of The Fifth Element, which is Dan's pick. To start us off, Dan is going to go ahead and give us some box office stats. All right. So this is my pick, and this is actually probably one of my uh, – it's not quite up there with Star Wars, but it's, 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 it's up there on my top ten list. But – this movie domestically made $63 million, internationally $200 million worldwide. No, it's, wait, what? That's crazy. $200 million internationally. Yeah, it is, it is a bit ridiculous. All kinds of awards. You got the BAFTA Award, 2020 Award, Boogie Awards, Caesar, Golden Screen, Lumiere Award, all led film, film and television. So it's, it's highly... Well rewarded, well praised movie. Seven point seven stars on IMDb, seven seventy percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and has an eighty six percent audience score. Whenever I see a high audience score, I tend to uh, put more weight in that one because that's people actually seeing the movie, not just critics. Yes, yes. the critics on this. Um, I I will say the critics are definitely very critical, and the, and it doesn't really <laughs> show how much people enjoy the movie. Hence why the yeah. audience is so much more. Yeah, this is this is one. We'll we'll get into the uh, the nitty gritty of how we all feel about this movie. But this movie cost a total of ninety three million dollars, so it doubled its money. So yeah, definitely have a uh, a nice little shining star as far as far as a critical acclaim here. Yep. All right, Nadine. Interesting movie facts. So I have a few for you guys. The divine language, which was spoken by Lilu, was invented by the co-writer and director, Luke Besson, and further refined by Mila Jovovich, who had little trouble learning and developing as she already was fluent in four languages. Just as a heads up, the language had only 400 words, and she was able to have full conversations with Luke Besson just to get herself, like, wait. Really fluent with it. Wait, so you're telling me the the language they spoke in this movie, or what she spoke, is actually a language that they created for it? Yep. Yeah. No, I have that's, a list. That's I actually do have a list of the language. Dedication. That is actually pretty amazing. That's that's a cool fact right there. So actually, it's even cooler than you think it is because there's another language out there that's actually spoken in a country. It's called Sranan or Taki Taki. It has 340 words. That's it. It's a Creole language, and I think it's only spoken by like 120 to 160,000 residents of a country called Suriname. So I thought that was pretty cool. It's, you could you could just say, I'm fluent in Taki-Taki, and people would be like, wow, that's so cool, and you just open up your one-page dictionary, and you're like, here you go. <laughs> yep, basically. So I was like, <laughs> okay, so they actually made a language for this movie that you would think be really, really short if you compare it to, like, the Lord of the Rings language. And then you're like, oh, 
There's an actual like spoken language out there that has less words. Got that it. Reminds me of uh, Klingon from uh, Star Trek or something like that. That's actually really neat. The fact, I mean, that that's that's actually really cool. I thought so too. That's why I added it in there. So Luke Besson wrote the original screenplay when he was in high school. He had conceived the story of this movie and invented the world of the movie as a child so he could escape his lonely childhood, which is really sad. Well, that's um, fucking <laughs> depressing, but all right. This is a culmination of a kid's entire dream to escape being bullied. All right. All right, let's go to the next fact then. <laughs> okay. So the flying traffic created by the visual effects team also allowed artists to create personalized license plates. Never really visible in the movie, the state slogan printed on all license plates reads, New York, the fuck you state. I can, I, tell where he was growing, I can tell where he was growing up as a child then. Okay. Yep. So I thought this was also pretty interesting. So when Luke Besson originally wrote this story, he made the hero taxi driver because his own father worked a second job as a taxi driver. He did this to support Luke going to art school. And so now he actually puts taxi drivers in almost all of his movies. That's actually... There's really a sweet. lot of neat facts about this movie. Wow, okay. Yeah, uh, so when they did the film, Mila Jovovich's hair color, originally they were actually dyeing it all the time, but her hair got destroyed, obviously. If you ever bleach your hair that many times and you have to do it regularly with that bright of a color, your hair is going to start falling out. So I oh, think halfway through the movie... the wig the entire time. I know. Halfway through the movie, they switched to a wig, and you can actually kind of tell in areas when she's actually wearing the wig compared to when it's her real hair, because you can see the difference in the thickness. Wait, wait, wait I just read it. She'll tell me the next fact. <laughs> okay. So, Vin Diesel provided the voice of Finger, but didn't receive any on-screen credit whatsoever. Hey, Vin Diesel, I got something for you, man. Hey, what is it, boss? Um, uh, I want you to play uh, this this audio clip. Can you say it for me? Uh, this one says it. Yeah, what about it? And then just hangs up the phone. That's what we're using, guys. We got him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So according to the Ultimate Edition DVD, Prince and Michael Jackson wore sources of inspiration for the part of Ruby Rod, and both were actually even considered for the role, which I thought was pretty crazy. This movie was supposed to be a trilogy. Luke Besson had three scripts that he just condensed into one movie. That makes a lot of sense because this movie was, it felt like it was very long and it was a little bit too quick at times. Also, wasn't this, very first, fast wasn't this a book at first instead of a movie? I've heard that before, so I'm not really sure. Yes. Yes, it is. It is a book. Cool. The Fifth Element is based on a story by Luke Besson, and it was a comic book. Oh, cool. Okay. Awesome. So this is pretty interesting. Mel Gibson was considered for the role of Corbin <laughs> Dallas, and Julia Roberts was considered for the role of Lilu. Can you imagine if that was the cast? <laughs> I just want to say right now, Vin Diesel, Prince, Mel Gibson, and Julia Roberts. Wow. That would have yep. been, yeah, it's amazing. And yep. also the full name, I got this, but this, this cracked me up. Okay, so I'm going to try. I don't think I got this. But her full, Lilu's full name in the movie is actually Lilu Minai Lakat Tariba Lamina Chai Ekbat Disibat. Lilu Minai Lakat Tariba Lamanai Chai Ekbat Disibat. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. No, dude, you have to, man. 
I want to hear it. Come on. Lulu and Midai, Laka, Tariba, Lamida, Chai, Ektat, De Sabat. All right. So the last little fact I'm going to give you before we go to move over to the movie synopsis is the actors inside the Mando Shiwan suits use mini television monitors to see where they were going. And it took three people 20 minutes to dress one person in that costume. So basically you're telling me this was the first stage of VR. Yeah, kind of seemed like it. <laughs> That's actually hilarious because there's something I actually noticed, Nadine, <clears throat> is um, the, the armor suits that they were wearing makes a, what looked too realistic for 1990s to be CGI. That's oh, yeah. probably where most of their budget went. I'm just saying that right now. The CGI is probably where most of it went, honestly. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to start it on the movie synopsis. <laughs> so the movie opens with a shot of Earth in space with a spaceship flying next to it. And it kind of pans into Egypt in 1914, where a Professor and his protege are studying ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs about the five elements and an evil coming to Earth. And as the professor is studying the hieroglyphs, a priest comes and poisons their water so they do not find the secret he's guarding. But unfortunately, the priest decides to yeet it to the side and decides to get wine instead, much to the priest's disappointment. Billy, the professor's protege, is sent to get the wine to make a toast for the findings when aliens come and they just come land, which I was not ready for that. The professor dies from a heart attack upon seeing them. And Billy, remaining hidden, as the alien opens a secret passage, where they collect four stones and a sarcophagus because war is coming. Now, as they leave with the items, the priest asks what humans are to do when the evil comes back. And basically, it pans out and says, uh, oh, we'll be back in 300 years. And then Billy comes out with a gun, shoots him, and it's just all this dramatic scene. And then they fly away. The scene then shifts to 300 years later, after we had no idea what just happened where the president is talking to a military team that is facing what looks to be like a giant star or like a flaming planet, and to see how much trouble they're in. The army does not know what they're looking at. It's just that it keeps getting bigger every time they shoot into it. And the priest Cornelius um, warns against shooting first and asking questions, as the general suggested. The priest suggests this is because evil begets evil, and what they're facing is just that, and by trying to attack it, you're just going to be making it stronger. Um, and, of course, the general's like, yeah, no, fuck you, I want to do what I want, and just shoots it anyways, and it grows bigger, and then eventually he dies and gets swallowed up by it, hilariously enough. Also, made no sense why, why the blood was pouring from his forehead when that happened, but that is explained fully later on. The scene then shifts to our main character, Corbin, waking up for the day and getting ready for work. When he talks to his buddy about finding the perfect woman, and then he leaves his, for work in a taxi, a flying taxi, where we find that he's actually running out of license points to keep his job. Because he's shitty at his job. He has about five points left at this scene, apparently. And the scene that shifts back to the priest and the president, where the priest tells him the Earth has 48 hours before the black ball, or the black star, flaming star, planet thingy, gets used to the Earth's conditions enough to consume it. The priest then tells the president that the Mandashawan, the aliens from the beginning of the movie, um, or the robot suits that we were talking about before, have the only weapon that could destroy it and are on their way. The ship, after being granted to enter Earth's territory, is then attacked by another set of aliens and destroyed. 
once the enemy aliens, led by Aknot, destroy the ship. They call a man named Zorg, who hired them to steal something from the Amanda Shawans. It's just lots of stuff that you wouldn't really get until you watch it, name-wise. Meanwhile, the president initiates a state of emergency. There was only one survivor, which wasn't really a survivor, just a hand. Then the doctors and a general take the hand and recreate the being that was attached to it. All the while, the doctor explains that whoever the hand belonged to had supreme genetic code, over 200,000 strands of genetic code when the normal human being has 40,000. Now, when they're finished, everyone is surprised to see it's actually a woman who is naked and is wrapped in what looks like God's wrap, speaking a language they don't know. Of course, the general, General Monroe, wants to take a picture for the archives, as this is a monumentous moment, and then gives Lilo, the girl they recreated, an ultimatum that if she wants... Lilo. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shush. If she wants out of her tube they recreated her in, she's going to have to comply. But, of course, this doesn't obviously work well for him, as she puts her hand through the tube and kills him, I think. Does she kill him? No, she just... Knocks him out. (laughs) It looks like she killed him, the way they did it. And escapes the building by jumping through the wall and making her way outside of a skyscraper. And on the edge of a skyscraper, um, this actually caught the police's attention. And she, they threaten her to get down. Well, she freaks out and jumps off the ledge. And guess who she falls through? The cab driver, Corbin, breaking through the roof of his car and then docking, as the robot says, four points left on the license, leaving him with one. The police attempt to arrest her, and Corbin, I guess because she's female and kind of almost naked, decides to drive away, ruining the rest of his license and no longer being allowed to be a cab driver, and they start a chase down until they're hidden by smog that covers the streets. Now, once in the smog, Lilu tells Corbin... Um, via Cornelius's name, and just to find him, like, before she passes out. Cornelius the priest, where they bring her into, does not really know what he's looking at at first until he sees a tattoo on her arm and promptly passes out because he's freaked out. Once the priest wakes up again, he tells Corbin to wake Lilu up, but be careful, she's mankind's greatest possession and is perfect. And once Corbin hears her as perfect... Suddenly, the rose-tinted glasses appear. Now, when Corbin wakes her up, she doesn't respond right away, and he's just like, I'm going to pull a uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. I'm just going to kiss her awake. She does, she does wake up for it, but pulls out his gun and basically points it at him. And at this, at this time, he apologizes. The priest walks back in and kicks Corbin out. The scene shifts to Corbin arriving home, regretting kissing her when he gets a call from his boss about the cab, and he tries to lie his way out of it, but his boss knows, obviously, that he fucked over the cab. The scene goes back to Lilu, who's on the computer, learning at super speed the human language and technology she's missed for 5,000 years. The priest asks where this case that holds the stone is, the elements. She tells them it has been stolen. After a brief scene involving Zorg, the thief where he just fires one million of his calf drivers, which I don't know. That scene was hilarious, but don't really know why that was there. Lilo says she knows exactly where the stones are, just as Cornelius thinks of Zorg drinking his home. Or, speaking of drinking, I need to take a swig. 
Visiting his home, sir. <laughs> Visiting his home. Good <laughs> lord. Anyways, the scene switches back to Zorg, where he's trading weapons to Aknot and his crew for the case that's supposed to hold these stones, once again referencing it, and he opens it and finds out it's empty. Lilu, at the time, as it reverts back to her, reveals the stones are with someone else that is trusted, and she's supposed to meet with that person on Flowstone. Is that actually pronounced like that? It's Flowstone, really yeah. Flawston. Yeah. 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 There's a lot there's a lot of words that it just yeah. Zorg freaks out and says he will not give the weapons to Aknot. Aknot threatens him and leaves just one case for him, but does not tell him that this these case of weapons that they're trying to trade the stones for. Um there is a button on it. And one of the Zorgs gets curious, presses the button, and blows up and kills them all. Zorg then sends his henchmen to collect the priest Cornelius to try and convince them to tell him where the stones are. Cornelius refuses, but saves Zorg's life, and Zorg, being the humanitarian that just spat on the cherry, decides to spare him, and sends one of his henchmen instead to go after the stones. This scene then shifts to the president and the general. They're curious as to why the evil black star ball is eating all the satellites, to which they discuss what the Mandishawan said about the stones. The Mandishawan explains to the general that the stones are with a diva on Flostan, and the president orders the general to put on his put his best man on it. Obviously, the general's like, "Aha! I know what for. Let me bring up the plot armor Corbin, who up until six months ago was in the military as a major in the Secret Service in a division that is really impressive." Obviously, unaware of any of this, Corbin is eating Thai food with his cat in his apartment when he gets mail that tells him he's fired from the company. Then he gets a call from his mom, who's mad that he doesn't call her. And tells him he won a trip to Flostin, Paradise, which he is unaware of at that moment. And also, she says some really hilarious lines in there, which I'm going to mention later. At that moment, the general shows up with, at his door with two other military members nicely to offer him a job to go to Flostin and get the stones. While the general is there telling him, you totally won that trip legally to Flostin. Lilu shows up and Corbin convinces the three to hide in his fridge and shoves them all in there. Then Corbin lets Lilu in. The priest comes out of nowhere with a gun and threatens Corbin for his tickets to Flostin so they can retrieve the stones. At the moment the police show up, Corbin then hides the priest in his bed and Lilu in the automatic shower. The police takes Corbin's neighbor, thinking it's him, because the priest switched the name tags on the door, and the police get on the phone with Zorg letting him know they just arrested Corbin for uranium smuggling. When Aknok shows up and then takes Corbin's neighbor from the police, thinking it's Corbin, so they can use his likeness to flight. It, it, three different parties here trying to fight each other to, to uh, prevent each other from going to get the stones. Now back in the apartment, Corbin brings Lilu down from the shower, who is wet and freezing from the auto wash, and they have a small romantic moment till they hear Cornelius suffocating from being wrapped in plastic underneath the bed. I'm going to be honest, that was one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> that was hilarious not my favorite though i have many favorites while corbin is making coffee for cornelius by pouring old coffee into a pot and says yeah i'm not really good at making coffee um cornelius steals the tickets and hits corbin on the back of the head with one of his old golden military medals corbin then opens the fridge to the frozen general and says i'll take the job in his serious voice the priest Lilu and the priest's underling arrive at the airport and try to use Corbin's tickets, but Corbin arrives on time and gets on the flight instead with Lilu. 
The priest then stows away in the wheels of the ship, and Corbin gets stuck doing a radio segment with one of my favorite characters ever, Ruby Rod. At the moment, Aknot's people show up pretending to be Corbin, but of course they get the police called on them because Corbin's already on there. And then the Zorg sentiment show up and finds Corbin tickets were already claimed and then gets blown up by Zorg for it. It's hilarious. Not long really after is. that, it did this the comedic genius. Not long after that, the giant evil black star um, ball makes a call to Zorg using uh, Vin Diesel's voice, which I did not know was Vin Diesel, but now it makes total sense, to see how the stones are, or where if he's gotten them yet. Zorg tells him he'll get them soon, but he needs more money, and the black ball says it's of no importance, but he wants the stones. Corbin and Lilu arrive at Floston, the, the paradise location, but they get separated. Corbin arrives at a room and wants to know if he can see the diva show and finds he actually already has the tickets. Um, Lilu waits for the arrival of the diva near the diva's room and is told she'll receive the stones after the concert. Show up at the concert where the diva is going to play. And we also get a glimpse that Agnot and his soldiers are also there waiting for attack. And as the diva is singing, which I think was a reference to another movie, I just want to share that. As the diva is singing... Aknot's team goes into the Diva's room and take a box they believe the stones are in, but they never actually check, and Lilo kicks their ass. Zorg then shows up as she goes to take the box, and I'm assuming Lilo knew the stones weren't in there as she just yeets the box at him and then he starts shooting at her. Lilo jumps into an air vent, but Zorg just keeps fucking shooting at her, and then he plants a bomb before he leaves. Now, while all that is going on, Aknot and his cronies are pissed that Lilo kicked their ass, and of course they just take over the ship. In the chaos, Diva gets shot, and before she tells the Corbin to get the stones to Lilo, and that she needs to protect her and give her his love as she's more fragile than she seems, she then tells them that the stones are inside of her. And as Zorg finally opens the box in his ship and realizes he doesn't have the stones, Corbin rips the stones out of her stomach after she dies. I don't know why they were inside there, but, you know, why not? Corbin then forces Rudy, who's still with them. Why do you keep calling him Ruby in this? Because it's, it's Ruby Rod. Is it? I thought it was Rudy Rod. Pretty sure it's Ruby Rod. Whatever. Anyways, Mr. The, the, <laughs> the leopard skin guy, who's still with them to guard the jacket with his life while he's being taken care of by the Mangalores, Aknot and his crew. The president, who'd been listening to to Ruby's show the entire time, is pissed that things weren't going as you know that things weren't going peaceful like the general said it would go. And then the general said, "Oh, don't worry, Corbin will calm it down." And then Corbin pulls out a fucking laser assault rifle and starts shooting shit, much to the general's dismay. Now, after Corbin beats the Mangalore in the lobby, he runs off to find Lilu, and as we see Zorg, come back to Floston. Now, while Corbin looks for Lilu. He finds that the captain and the priest have been taken hostage by Aknot and ends up shooting Aknot in the head, saving them, which that scene is also gold. The priest, Corbin, and Ruby look for Lilu and find her in the diva's vents, and Ruby finds the bomb Zorg left on the ship. The hotel bomb alert goes off, and as everyone evacuates, Zorg, who planted the bomb, lands back on the ship to get the stones. Zorg just misses Corbin, also another golden moment. And the gang, as he gets back to the diva's room and stops the bomb, and the gang steals a ship and escapes. Zorg, who then deactivates the bomb, realizes that the Mangalores actually replanted the bomb again and rewired it and gets blown up anyways. 
It's a separate bomb. It's actually the the Akhenon and his crew. It's their own bomb because they said, I'm doing it for honor, and then they blow up a separate bomb. I th- it was hilarious. Now he's like, oh no. <laughs> As the gang is patching up their wounds, Corbin, and by the way, guys, this is we're almost done. Corbin gets a call from the president, letting him know that the Jeevil, Jeevil, giant evil black star ball is heading for Earth and will be under there in an hour and 57 minutes. To which Corbin replies, well, I'll call you in two hours. Corbin then rushes to the Egyptian temple from the beginning of the movie. And once there, they try to put the weapon to defeat the evil star ball thing together using the four stones or, you know, the artifacts. Lilu is still injured and barely able to stay conscious, but is able to cryptically tell them how to activate the stones with a fucking match. Great scene. After the stones are activated, Corbin has to convince Lilu that humans are worth saving, and tells her he loves her, and then, of course, kisses her. Once he kisses her, it activates the weapon, and then the evil ball is just, just destroyed by the laser beam that comes out of Lilu's mouth. Great. <laughs> it's just not what I expected. The two are then taken to back to the doctor that originally reanimated her, and the president visits them while they're in the tube. When the doctor goes to wake them up, he finds that they're, well, fucking, and the president gets pissed until he gets a call from Corbin's mom. At first, he tries to tell her about her son, and then she starts bitching and saying some more golden lines, and everyone passes around the phone to avoid her. The last shot is of Corbin and Lilu naked on the bed making out in a blue tent. Holy crap, that was a lot. You wanted me to write it. You should probably write your own. <laughs> no, actually, you know what? I am more glad to let you write it and me read it because I know that probably took you about two, three hours, and I read it in five minutes. But now I'm going to get a drink because that was really difficult work right there, and I think this man deserves one. All right, get yourself a drink. <laughs> um, Go for it. So there's a couple things that I wanted to talk about. The first one... The one that bothered me the most about this movie is the stone in her fucking, in the diva's stomach. I don't, I don't know why it bothered me as much. How the fuck did she get them inside of her? <laughs> I don't think that part is really important, per se. She's a diva. Okay. How did she expect not to die to get them back out of her body when she had to give the stones <laughs> to yeah, Maybe she was playing, like, well, maybe because, like, where he was stat, where she was, like, shot or whatever, it was in her intestines, I suppose. Maybe she was playing, like, I don't know, like, popping a squat when they got there. It doesn't make sense. How did they fit inside of her? They're not small. That, I don't think that's important, Nadine. I think you're really looking at this movie <laughs> on black colored glasses, just seeing all of the shade being passed around. I don't think that's important. It's John is usually the one giving a lot of shade, and now he's like, I'm going to overlook this because I like this movie. <laughs> but here's, here's the deal, right? This movie is a goddamn masterpiece. And I know for a fact <laughs> that Dan agrees with me. I, I, I am going to lean more towards you, your side of the uh, like I, I think when I was younger, like I never really questioned a lot of these things, especially like the, the stones, the body of I don't know why it makes sense, but it it's just I don't know. This movie is is a lot of fun for me. So okay, let's let's take it from the top, Nadine. Let's start with your bullshit that you disagree with with this movie because you're just different, and then we'll actually come out with the truth, me and Dan. So go ahead, go ahead, start off. <laughs> okay, it's literally just the stones. <laughs> That's it. That's the That's only fucking thing you don't like. I didn't. That really bothered me. 
why? There's so it many things. How about, it how about the fucking Asian? How about the Asian noodle driver that shows up at his place while he's wanting to order Thai food and is speaking in the most racist possible accent? Like, here, fortune cookie. Like, how about that? Or the subtle fucking sexism? No, no, you go for the stones that are in someone's stomach. See, she doesn't like I don't like guts. Yeah, Dan, sorry. <laughs> I don't like guts. Anything with guts, I'm like, fuck this. This is bullshit. I don't like it. And oh. I love horror movies. So, like, it's, it's, it's Are a bad... You're high. <laughs> you're high. So, guys, there's a lot about this movie. A lot. Like, this is a ridiculous amount. So, there's so many golden scenes. So, if we just start from the very, very beginning, there's a scene where Corbin, the main character, the dude or whatever, who's played by a really good actor. What is his name again? Bruce um, Willis. Bruce Willis. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so, so you're playing this, this serious character in a just a humorous movie, right? Leaves his apartment because he's getting robbed or what he thinks is something strange. <laughs> and this dude is holding a ray gun at him that he modified himself with a hat on that is a picture of the hallway <laughs> on top of his head that was pointing towards the camera that Corbin was using to look out of the door. Okay? So he was looking out of the door and seeing a perfect scene like nothing's wrong. He leaves and it's getting robbed by someone wearing a hat that was supposed to be, uh, to, you know, I don't know why it's in the movie. I don't think it really matters per se, but it was fucking hilarious. He starts roasting the dude. He's like, oh yeah, you gotta turn your gun on real quick. And he's like, oh, oh, okay, oh, I'll turn it on. And then he presses the button, turns it on, he's like, now give me all your, your things. And then Corbin pulls out a gun, to which the dude just panics and fucking jitters away. And he's like, oh, yeah, what, I like your hat, by the way. You like my hat? Oh, it just starts these weirdest fucking dance ever. That's just one of the scenes, all right? It's just, it's so good, Dan, don't you agree? Oh, yeah, that, that's it. It's the kind of thing that, like, when you, when I, I think I was probably like ten or eleven when I first saw this movie, and like that kind of stuff was just like, when you're younger and you think it's hilarious, now then you see when you're older, it's so stupid, it's hilarious. Like, it's, yes, yes, it's yeah. humor that doesn't get old. I mean, it yeah. is, it's bad humor, but like, you weren't expecting it because he just opens the door and there he is with a fucking hat. That's just a panel <laughs> of the of the picture of the room. Like, how the fuck did he come up with that for the joke for the movie? It's brilliant. It's amazing. This whole movie is is more of a comedy, which is actually kind of funny. Before Bruce Willis was known as a action hero, he was like in a lot of like comedy comedy dramas and like romantic. Well, yeah, they always need a stoic guy in the comedy that just doesn't really understand all the humor around No, him. he was the comedian. He was the one who played the funny character. He was the comedic release. And he was also the romantic. Uh, he was the one that everyone saw romantically. Well, Bruce, Bruce Willis was a perfect choice for this movie because, like, there's just... Oh, God, there's so many golden scenes. Dan, what about the scene where... Uh, where he just lifts um, Ruby by his neck up on the wall, and it's like, I don't, I'm here for one thing, yeah, and I don't want to deal with this. He's like, oh, oh, help me, like that, and I'm just fucking dying because his voice is just so high. It's it's Die Hard and Star Trek just combined into like one movie, and like this kind of crazy like '90s '80s like plot. 
it, it's awesome. But it's, the plot does, oh, it's not even Star Wars. It's Spaceballs. <laughs> no, 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 no. Spaceballs oh, yeah. is mocking something else. This in itself actually does have a storyline. It, it does. does it is really cool too. Like the fact that she is the fifth element, and the other four elements, which never really was discussed, but makes a lot of sense, are the stones that they're looking for, so they can beat off the enemy. I mean, it's a very well, yeah, that, basic plot, that, but it's cool. But like, it's actually a very intricate and interesting lore. Like you said about the languages, like there's a language created just for this movie. The whole story of these aliens that come back every 5,000 years. Like, that's not something out of, like, a spoof movie. That's, like, something you could see in, like, a like a classic sci-fi movie. Yeah, it's... There's a lot of stuff included in this. Like, I'm not sure... Like, there's so many movies I could mention. Like, of course, there's The Lord of the Rings. There's, uh... Um, what's that one dragon movie with, like, the blue dragon or whatever? I forget. It's, like, made by some... It's based on a book or whatever. That has its own language. Um, then, you know, the Star Trek, as they mentioned. It was what? a book called Aragon. The movie Aragon, sucked thank ass, you. The movie yeah, sucked, the movie sucked so ass. Bad. But the book had its own language. Like, it's... The book was amazing. The, it kills me how much depth you can pull from a movie like this that is so bare bones and probably didn't go the way they intended, but they were like, fuck it, let's just go with it, you know? Yeah, like, now that you... When you mentioned that, like, it, it was supposed to be a trilogy, like, it makes sense because there are a lot of, like weird plot points that just kind of like it skipped over and like you're like wait what happened okay whatever so they don't really get skipped over everything is kind of concise and it all makes sense but everything it's so subtle the way that they put together the movie when they talk about the world building and things like that it's so small and so subtle and they're kind of just slipped in there here and there you don't realize it unless you're like trying to dissect it which i have to when i do the synopsis and then you're like oh well that's how i figured out that this was going on because they give you the explanation but they don't beat you over the fucking head with it it doesn't make it boring when one thing i really like about this movie and as i discussed with you guys before we did this podcast was that i've been watching a lot of superhero movies recently right and a lot of sci-fi and action movies and in every single movie i've watched that this movie does not have is it keeps referencing a drive for the characters to keep pushing through the movie. This movie's like, fuck it, I'll just do it. Yeah, let's go, you know? Well, it's because everyone has their own reason why they're doing it. Corbin's not trying to save the world, trying to save Lilu. Yes, and it's just a straightforward plot that's meshed into a tangle, and it doesn't need all of these reminders of why something is happening. In fact... There are key points that are given in the very beginning and slightly middle beginning of the movie that you suddenly realize at two-thirds of the movie, like, oh, that plot point makes sense now. Like, it's just really, really neat how it all comes together. Well, no, I, I know what you're being, because uh, Nadine pointed out in the beginning, like, when uh, Corbin's, like, talking to someone on the phone in his apartment, he's like, I just, I'm just i looking for the perfect woman. Yes, and then yes, that right as, there. Yes. Yeah, and then, like... Later in the movie, when when the priest says like, "Oh, she's like the perfect specimen," he's like, "Oh, I like her." Yeah, so. <laughs> that's a very shallow he is, yeah. but still. Um, so I have to talk about some comedic moments in the movie. So first things first, the choreography with the action scenes were just was just dull, but it makes the comedy that much better because you would expect this amazing punch scene. But while Lilu is, you know, attacked or attacking the Mangalores or whatever it is, 
one like a, a new group of um new group of them shows up while she beats all their comrades and he's standing right behind her all intimidatingly and she reaches her fist back and just taps him on the nose and he falls unconscious and then continues fighting it's hilarious the comedy is ingenious in this movie like i don't think i've laughed out loud to a, you know a movie in a while with these scenes i think it's not your normal classic choreography with fight scenes but they definitely did it well because if you think about it when corbin <laughs> was fighting the entire army of the Mangalores. He was using Ruby Rod as a prop yes. to go forward yeah. <laughs> the entire... And they did it so beautifully. It was literally smooth the entire way. Yes, yes. It was like, it wasn't shoot and then dramatic dramatic talk, dramatic pause. It's like shooting, 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 and then right when we're about to get bored, it switches to another scene, right? With a different character, Lilu, doing something else then switches to a different scene. It's just, it's, I have to say this, like the cinematics on it and how they did uh, like the, the scene transfers. Like it's, it's not like other movies. It's actually really, really concise and consistent. I really like that. Um, also another scene I have to mention where he shoots Ruby from the, with the gun to actually break. He's like, stay there. And she, he's like, what? And then he just starts shooting the, uh, the floor and he falls down or whatever, and then he plants a grenade up there, and you just hear this uh, this this dude wearing a rose outfit screaming at the highest pitch of his lungs. It's amazing. I have to say, the guy who played him had to have no voice every time he did a scene like that afterwards. Maybe, maybe his voice was like that. Who played him? Chris, Chris Tucker, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, come on. I mean, that, that's kind of his... But he his... Was, no, but he's screaming. Like, he's constantly screaming. Yeah. This whole movie, he's yelling. Oh, or he played like, in Rush Hour. He did, yeah. 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 Interesting. He's him. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I guess it was yeah. when he was a lot younger, of course. But still, like, I don't think... And here's the thing. I don't think the movie would have been made as good as it is without each and every character. And that's something very unique about this movie. Every character in this movie is important. Every single one. I bet you can't name a single character, Nadine, outside of the, you know, the the characters that are there just for a second that aren't there for a reason. Even the Thai driver gave him a fortune cookie and said something, I forget what it was, but said something that reminded him of something else. Every single character had a point in being there. It isn't just there just because they're a character, you know? Um... I can give you a few, actually. So, uh, originally, they actually were meant to be more involved in the fighting scene, but the uh, ministers, the senators, the politicians, and then the one politician with his daughter, who Ruby Rod actually does, like, the moaning of the voice for, even though they mention them in the movie and they do have an interaction with the main characters, they're not played out, even though they were supposed to be in the original copy, but... They still had a purpose originally, though. Even though that's the case, that probably they was did. cut out yeah, cut because out. the movie was two hours and 40 minutes long. Like No, it was two hours and five minutes. Was yeah. it? Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, well, the director's cut. My bad. Yeah, the director's cut? I think so. Hold on. Let me see. Uh, yeah, I'm not watching two hours and 40 minutes of a movie. <laughs> Say that by way. <laughs> Yes, it's the ultimate edition, which um includes a lot of the the cutted the cut scenes. I think. Also, so then um, at that point is when you're going to watch it and you're going to see those people that mm-hmm. I just mentioned have more uh, like 
input into the movie. If you just watch the regular one that's actually been shown into the theaters, they don't. I will say, though, the deaf guy with the blonde, the white hair, it's not a real part, but it's like a small part he plays in the movie where he, instead of giving Corbin the gun, he gives him two billiard balls. <laughs> okay, okay, that scene's also fucking gold. He's like, pass me a gun. And he's like, what? Pass me a <laughs> Gun, and then he points at it, and then he rolls him some billiard balls right when he's getting shot at, and he just looks up and he's like, "Thanks, thank you." <laughs> and it's just like, oh my god, it's it's not like uh, the previous movie, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Scott Pilgrim versus the World used a lot of awkward humor and awkward moments to drive um, a humorous perspective. This movie just went all fucking out. Like it wasn't over the top comedy. Like, uh, I'd say Weird Science was, where it was just over the top. It was such subtle comedy that you can look at it, not really notice it, but still fucking laugh at it because it's good. And they nailed it when it came to that. Don't you agree? I would say they did pretty good with the comedy, but I think if they didn't have the actors that they had playing the parts that they did, it wouldn't have been as good. I hate to say it, but I feel like Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts would not have done those parts right. At all. I, I agree. Well, that, yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's saying that you're going into what ifs, Nadine. We're talking about the movie, not what could the movie have done. You no, know? I'm not saying what ifs. I'm saying if they didn't have the, the people who played the characters that they had, it wouldn't have been as good because you could oh. have those comedic moments, but if someone can't deliver, then you ain't going to have a funny movie. I will say this, though. If uh, I really like Ruby a lot, the person who played him, Chris Tucker was his name, I think. Um, but good lord, if they had Michael Jackson in there, oh, that would have been better. My that would have been way better. God. <laughs> I would. I think he's supposed to be pay, playing a character like Prince, though, I, even more than Michael Jackson. Oh yeah, it's definitely like a Prince character, but with a yeah. Michael Jackson voice. What about a uh, Ruby sidekicks that are trying to praise him, but they're all speaking in like really shitty, high pitch attitudes, and it's just like. He's like, "Was I good today?" They're like, "Yeah, yeah, you were. You were." Yeah. Like, it was just amazing amazing i'm sorry i i'm, I'm starting to fangirl over the movie this is a i like i do like that they put their own slang in there because they were like they were like was i good today and they were like green you were super green all right well how green like emerald like emerald like super like the super grass green. like, like the, the grass, grass. he's like what do you mean like the grass like beautiful grass <laughs> good shit yeah um, like but they, green was like meant it's awesome like i was like all right now, well, I, guess I get with that <laughs> There is a couple of things I do want to mention about the movie that kind of really confused me. Um, why do some of the villains have Southern or Irish accents? Why? Um, so I think just to, the, for the one that is for Zorg, I think the reason why he did that, because I don't think that was originally supposed to be like that. I think he just put the accent on there. I think he was just trying to make himself seem more unhinged. <laughs> Like he was like, like uh, the Southern Arms dealer. Like, like yeah. I just want to mention, like, it, yeah, totally. I could really see this. This is a timeless movie. But three hundred years in the future, do you really think that accent still is around? <laughs> I mean, they had the New York accent still. His mom called, and she totally had. Her mom is an entire different topic. I don't want to immediately bring up yet. Like, I've been waiting for this one, but. Zorg's accent really confused me for a solid minute or two, and it kind of bugged me at first. 
but his accent fell in place. Then it just became that much better later on when he said certain things like where he's like, oh, no. Right before he got blown up. Great accent choice. Right. That's what I'm saying. I feel like it just made him seem more unhinged, which is exactly <laughs> what he was going for. He was supposed to be just crazy because he liked chaos. <laughs> oh, it was good. It was really good. Um, so before we go into the giant topic of the absolute godsend, Corbin's mom, do you guys have anything else to input on this? Because I just, I could talk about this forever. So the one thing that I thought was really cool is in the beginning of the movie, when the aliens came down and they were like, war is coming. It's 1914 in July of 1914 was the first time there was a world war, you know, on earth. (laughs) They weren't talking about a war that was in space. They were literally referencing history. And I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, I was like, wow. So I want to I want to mention. um, So how depressed was this person who wrote this film? Like, this has so much story that I, in honest opinion, if the dude kept writing it, he could create an entire thing like Star Wars out of this. Like, I kid you not. And people would probably eat it just as much as they would Star Wars, right? Because that's how Star Wars started as well. The first episode of the trilogy was wasn't that supposed to be a one-off, Dan? Uh, yeah, I mean, like I, I think he he had like the the whole saga like all written up, but like I think he really, really expected one movie to really be actually made. Yeah, but let like let's be honest here. Like the Fifth Element, I think could have actually gone that route and went into like a saga type of thing, where multiple different series on it. And if they kept the same tone and the comedic effect to it, we all know the second movie is always bad in a series, but, you know, it would still, still pick up like that. I don't think it would have been as big as Star Wars because Star Wars is a little different. This one, it's a geek movie. Yeah, I know. So it's, it probably would still have fans. I just, I don't think it'd be anywhere near. I don't even think it, honestly, I think it would still be a cult classic, but I think it'd be a cult classic series instead of just a one-off movie, which is what it is right now. Yeah. I think what this movie, it's not quite appropriate for the the family to go as a whole. Cause there's a lot of, uh, innuendos and like pretty blatant references to like, um, the Ruby rod was eating out a chick. And yeah. fucking spaceship, okay? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so her legs, it's like lift off and her legs raised up. He's like, we yeah. reached orbital altitude and her legs slowly went. Yeah, so I think just back some down. of the, uh, the, the, I mean, it's not like super brought you, but like he, it, it's a very, uh, first, and he looks to the right and he's like, yeah, you're my first human. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very sexually overt movie. Like they, well, let's let's be honest. Like if that stuff wasn't included in the movie, it probably oh, it wouldn't have it. made too much of a difference. And then you could have made a like an actual like series of movies about this. Because yeah. I don't know. I think it's really interesting. But there's a couple of things I really wish were explained a bit more in the movie. Why is there a fifth element? Why are the four stones so important? You know, blah, 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 this. Why is that villain there? Like, there's so many exploration options they could have taken for various different movies. That's, I think, my complaint on it. I want to watch more. So I could give you the explanation for the fifth element. No, I, I couldn't. I'm trying to give you the explanation for the others. No, no, no. Yes, um, yes, yeah. It's too no. late. It's happening now. It's happening now. She's supposed to be the representation of what the human race could be. That's all it is. That's why it's supposed to be life and love destroying basically death. All right, all right, so I have to bring it up now. 
waited long enough. I've been wanting to say this. His mom, Corbin's mom, had maybe three lines in the entire movie, but is probably one of the most memorable characters, in my opinion. She had more than three lines. She just only came up three times in the movie, and her lines literally could have made half of... Like, some of the characters (laughs) talked less than her, and they were main characters. (laughs) And the shit she said, dude... Was why don't you just why don't you just push me into a garbage truck and, and you know push me out into traffic and blah 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 stuff me under the board you know you don't even care for me like literally the best the best thing I've ever heard and he's like and he's like well, I, you you got some tickets to go to um to this paradise you should you should definitely take those and take me take me I want to go to paradise <laughs> I need a tan I deserve a tan yes yes. <laughs> <laughs> she was good she was a goddamn gem yeah Wait, do, yeah. do we actually ever see her or is it just through the phone no, no never always the phone. No. they yeah, don't even that's... give credit to the actress actually but, but, yeah it's, but you have you have a vivid image of her just through her voice so that's i'm thinking that's like else. i'm thinking like uh i know this sounds bad but i'm thinking like nadine but just a little bit taller and longer more curly hair with a brooklyn accent actually i was thinking more of like the stereotypical 80s mom it just it's from Brooklyn. That's what I was thinking. With like the crazy like There's definitely a cigarette like hanging out of her mouth. Hell yeah. Okay, okay. I I'm I'm a fangirling about this movie enough. Um do you guys right. have anything else to add into this? Because this my review is mostly positive. There are a couple of negative points. So we're running so we're starting to run pretty tight on time, so let's go to the, the, the next segment. Oh, we're running tight, Nadine. Gotcha. Go ahead. Let's go. <laughs> so, do you guys think this is a cult classic or not? Is it or isn't it? Dan? I think it has to be. I mean, it, it, it's a standalone movie. It kind of has a huge, it has a crazy international appeal. Uh, but no, I, I think this hits all the checkbooks as far as a cult classic goes. Yep. Um, I'm going to 100% agree with Dan and add more to that. Um, when I think of a cult classic, I think of an underrated masterpiece. I don't think of an underrated, you know, oh, everyone remembers this because they were born around the time the movie came out and they happened to be 13 and went to the movie theaters, you know. Um, This movie still holds its classic appeal nowadays, even though it's only like, what, 24 years old? But it's, I can tell this is going to be one of those movies that everyone's going to want, you know, even in way in the future, they're still going to watch it. It's a a classic, an absolute classic. Yeah, it definitely gets a lot of runtime still. Like even on like oh, yeah. randomly on the weekend, like you'll see it on the Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah, this is just a this is the literal definition of a cult classic. Didn't start off too well, did good, but it's much more remembered now. Yeah. So I think it's a cult classic as well. Main reasons why is it's got music that actually in it that it has a cult following to it. It didn't do so great. Not internationally, but with just us, they, they kind of bombed. The movie was like, I think, 30 under <laughs> for a profit here. But once it hit international, it made a shit ton of money. And then on top of that, like they still play the movie all the time. If you mention it to someone and, you know, they're into these kind of movies, they're going to be like, yeah, I know. I know that movie. It's a good movie. Dan and I were talking about it to my dad. And he was like, no, I like that movie. It's a good one. Well, yeah, we, we, I was talking to uh, Satori's dad about it as well, and we were geeking out about a couple of scenes, but he showed me so many different things about this movie, like the Diva song or whatever. I said I referenced it to another movie, 
because I didn't realize that that scene is so famous of Diva singing and how so many people have tried to sing like that before. And it's, it's literally considered impossible, but everyone knows that song. Everyone knows it. Everyone, everyone knows does. it. And it's, it's all over YouTube. Like if you look up impossible song, literally Diva will pop up. Like it's just it's such one. a, it's, it's such a neat thing. It's such a neat thing. And I think it's pretty cool, too, because the one thing that I would like to say about this movie is that the way that they did the costumes and everything like that, it's kind of iconic. Like, you're never going to not remember those. Like, the diva herself was a pretty interesting color scheme. They went with that. And you're not going to forget who that is. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're not going to forget what she looks like. You're not going to forget the red-haired um, Lilu. You're not going to forget the outfit that, uh, you know, Corbin wore. Like, it just, it's interesting how this movie just kind of etches yourself. Yeah, it's, it's just it's so unique style. Yeah, yeah. It, it's really interesting how this, uh, how this movie just kind of etches itself into your mind after you watch it. It's very, very interesting. And I think that's why it's such a cult classic is why it still has such a following because people just remember every little tidbit about this movie. Yeah, I, I agree. Yep. Uh, you want to rate the movie, Nadine? Yeah, Dan, you go ahead and start it off because you guys aren't probably going to quite agree with me. <laughs> so I'm going to give this movie a nine. I think, I, I think it's just one of those movies that Puts me in, in like a nice. It's a chipper uh, mood. It's watching, a... Yeah, it's like a chipper mood. It's like you can follow along, or you can, like you can watch it like for detail, or you can just watch it as like this crazy action sci-fi. Like it's 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 a good movie. One of the better movies on in my book. Um, I don't want to give my rating just yet. Um, and I have a really good reasoning why. Nadine, can you please share yours? Well, I would say this movie for me is a seven. I like the movie, but it's not probably one of my favorite movies i like the comedy in it like i said i like the way they did you know all of like the makeup and the costumes i think they did a great job with that i do like the concept of the movie there's just some things in it that don't do it for me like the love like aspect to angle to it lilu never seems like she has an interest in him and he kind of it's like a shallow interest from him to her so i don't know there's just some things i'm not great with and there's other things that i absolutely love about this movie so for me it's a seven okay um i will give it and i told you in the very beginning when i said cult classics i probably will be never rating movies this high but i'm actually going to give it a solid 10 out of 10 and i think that this movie in itself Probably is one of the best movies I've seen. There's there's quite a few movies that I have watched that I have a very, very fond memory of. Some of which aren't really good movies like The Avatar, but I still remember it very well. The Martian, which I constantly bring up on various different occasions, is honestly one of those 9 out of 10 movies. But I just... I can see myself watching this for no other reason than just to watch it again. And I, to, to be honest, I might. I'm not even going to lie to you. And I don't like movies. I'll be, so, I'll be check out the uh, special edition, but... Yeah, like, there's... This movie is a treat. It is a gem, and it was rather unexpected. Because when I picked up this movie first, with, with uh, you know, Nadine's history of choosing out movies, I was rather concerned. This was my choice. <laughs> I know. And with Dan's movie of choosing out... Dan's history of choosing out movies, I was also concerned. 
I was going to say, Dan, you did surf Nazis must die. So. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm, uh, for the past, past two months, we've been watching movies that have been, you know, okay, Solaris was a good movie, but, you know, it had those moments and it just fucking dragged on. Um, and this movie is just like, fuck it, you know? You know, I'm bored. Let's watch this movie again. Like, it's a movie I can think I could actually watch again. And in my book, when a movie hits that point that I want to watch it for the hell of it again, it's a 10 out of 10. So that, and that's coming from a person that does not really like watching movies, does not like putting really any time into anything whatsoever when it comes to cinema. But this movie is probably going to waste a lot of hours in the future for me. And there you have it. So would you guys recommend this movie, Dan? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, if, if you haven't seen this movie, put pop it in and just just enjoy it. I would watch this movie in theaters. I, like, I would love to if, that, too. If this movie was played in theaters nearby, I would bring Satori along, um, and I would sit down, and I'd watch the fucking movie, and I'd be very, very happy. Like, I know, it's just, yeah. Of course, I fucking recommend it. I, I gave this movie a ten out of ten. What more do you want from me? So I would totally give. I would totally rate this movie. Uh, recommend this movie too. It's not a bad movie. I just think there's, for me personally, there's some aspects to it where I'm like, eh, they could have done a little better. But I also think it's really fucking funny, and they have like they did not pick the actors they picked. It would not have been as funny because they they stick the landing for those jokes so goddamn well that you are not going to forget those lines. So we're going to go ahead and close out the podcast here, guys. If you have any movie recommendations or want to talk to us about movies, uh, you can find us on Facebook through our private group. She's not a slut yet. The slut is S with three stars. Or you can email us at she's not a slut yet at gmail.com. If you guys like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps us get out, out there and more people find us. Um, and just as John said, it's his pick next week. So we'll be reviewing Kill Bill Volume 1, which was made in 2003. So seriously, make sure you come back next week and listen to it. This is a movie I have watched when I was a kid. I'm looking forward to watching it again. Thank God. And it's a good thing I chose this movie instead of like Dan or something, because then what would I choose, you know? But Jesus definitely Christ. looking forward to that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I just put I just introduced you to a great movie. And you introduced me to a movie I'm already in love with, Dan. Yeah. He also introduced him to Surf Nazis Must Die. So I don't you're 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 like a flip you're like a flip of a coin. One side is the worst thing ever. The one side is memorable in their own right. I have have blocked out that memory, Dan. I'm not sure if it's memorable or not. (laughs) All right. All righty. Well, we will talk to you guys next week. All right, close it out. Bye. See you guys. Bye.